0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: Hi, cardio nerds. This is Teo. Welcome to the CardioNerds Cardiovascular Genomics series. In the last episode, we enjoyed an intro to clinical genetics and electrophysiology. In this episode, we will learn about genetic counseling and family screening from doctors Angeli Wagley, Dr. James Samponiero, together with doctors Allison Hayes and Cindy James. Don't forget to review the notes prepared by Dr. Angeli Wagley. Special thanks to Chelsea Amo-Tuneboa for the audio editing. If you're getting excited about cardiovascular genomics, then you'll be happy to hear that the series will continue with a third episode on frontiers in genetics and cardiovascular prevention. We are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders in our work to democratize cardiovascular education. This episode was developed in collaboration with the American Society of Preventive Cardiology and supported with unrestricted educational sponsorship from Illumina Incorporated. As always, all Cardio Nerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by the Cardio Nerds team. If you enjoy the show, support our mission and help others find us by rating and reviewing us on your preferred podcast app. Now, without further ado, let's dive right in and get nerdy. <coughs>
2: Hey CardioNerds, I'm Anjali Wagley, a newly minted CardioNerds ambassador and cardiology fellow at Johns Hopkins. I'm super excited to bring you a great discussion about arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, or ARVC. There have been a few previous episodes in CardioNerds that discuss the initial presentation and diagnosis of ARVC that would be helpful to refer back to. To discuss this interesting topic, I'm joined with Dan, as well as Dr. James Simponiero, a superstar second-year resident at the Osler Medicine Residency Program at Johns Hopkins. Thanks for joining us, James.
3: Thanks, Anjali. I have the great honor of introducing Drs. Allison Hayes and Cindy James. Dr. Hayes is a general cardiologist and the medical director of the echocardiography program of the Johns Hopkins Hospital. Dr. Cindy James is a certified genetic counselor also at Johns Hopkins with research focusing on cardiovascular genetic counseling and arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathies. Welcome to CardioNerds, Dr. Hayes and Dr. James. Thank you so much, James
4: and Anjali. It's a pleasure to be here. I just wanted to introduce myself. Thank you for the kind introduction as well. I've been interested in cardiovascular imaging for many years, and I've been on faculty at Hopkins for about 12 years now. In addition to my role as a medical director of the Echolab, I also have a lot of interest in terms of research with cardiovascular magnetic resonance, or CMR. So it's wonderful to explore this very interesting disease process and collaborate with this amazing arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy center at Hopkins with Dr.
5: Cindy James, Dr. Hugh Hawkins, and others. Thanks so much, James and Anjali. My name is Cindy James. I'm a geneticist and genetic counselor. I've spent my career focused on inherited heart disease, specifically arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathies, And I'm really delighted to be here with you today to talk a little bit about that experience. I'm the research director of our Center for Inherited Heart Diseases, also research director of the ARBC program. And we're really fortunate to collaborate closely with Dr. Hayes, given her imaging expertise, because as I think you'll hear about later today, imaging is particularly important for both the diagnosis and the follow-up management in ARVC. So glad to be here and looking forward to our conversation.
0: This is Dan here and Dr. Hayes and Dr. James, thank you so much for being here today. Just on a personal note, Dr. James, you have helped us so much with our ARVC cohort patients that I was privileged to take care of several of them over the course of my training at Hopkins. And Dr. Hayes, I can personally testify to the amazing educator that you are and also researcher that you are because I have been learning from you for the last, I think it's been six years because I definitely was in the ECHO lab in my last year of residency. You have taught me so much, but more than that, I've seen generations of residents and fellows working under you, working with you, and you are truly an amazing sponsor and mentor to so many of the trainees that go through Hopkins. So it is amazing to finally get you on the show. We have been waiting for a very long time. So let's get started with talking about ARVC today. We are all very excited to learn about ARVC genetics and imaging. So with that, we'll just dive right in. To set the stage,
3: I wanted to discuss Ms. R.V. Ms. R.V. is a 30-year-old woman with no significant past medical history who was brought in by EMS after she passed out while playing basketball. On arrival, EMS noted she was in pulseless ventricular tachycardia and initiated ACLS. She obtained ROSC en route to the ED. Her EKG was notable for inverted T waves in V1 through V3 as well as a small positive deflection at the end of the QRS, thought to be an epsilon wave. During her hospitalization, she received multiple tests and images. She mentioned that she has a family history of ARVC, including her mom, who has an associated genetic mutation. Okay, that's a lot to unpack. Cardio nerds will remember ARVC from prior episodes. But for a brief review, Dr. Hayes, can you give us a bird's eye overview of ARVC? including its underlying pathophysiology?
4: Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. So um, ARVC is a very interesting disorder, and it results from genetically mediated desmosomal disruption, which are the glue that hold cells together. No one knows the underlying reason for the desmosomal disruption, but it's thought to be genetically mediated. What happens is once you have this disruption, it impairs intracellular signaling, And the heart responds by fibrofatty or fibrous replacement of the cardiomyocytes. So it's thought that some of the cardiomyocytes undergo apoptosis and instead of repairing in the normal way, are repaired by fibrofatty replacement, which disrupts the architecture of the heart itself. This eventually leads to thinning of the heart as well as weakness that can result in aneurysmal dilation and progressive RV
2: dysfunction. architectural deformation over time. That was a super helpful overview. Thank you, Dr. Hayes. One metaphor that I've heard in relation to ARVC is to imagine cardiac muscles playing tug of rope, but instead of rope, they're connected by a strand of spaghetti. So the harder the cardiac muscles work to contract and relax, the more the strands of spaghetti pull apart. The strands of spaghetti are the desmosomal proteins, and the mechanical stress of contraction and relaxation is thought to promote the myocyte uncoupling seen in ARVC that Dr.
3: Hayes just mentioned. Dr. James, could you help remind us how ARVC presents and what criteria we use to diagnose ARVC?
5: Sure, I'd be happy to. So ARVC is diagnosed um, using a bunch of consensus criteria called the 2010 task force criteria. This is a group of major and minor criteria in six different categories and someone need to meet either two major, a major and two minor, or four minor criteria to reach a definite diagnosis of ARVC. And those criteria start with evidence of structural disease, so evidence of right ventricular enlargement or wall motion abnormality, which I know that Dr. Hayes will be able to describe in more detail. There is a pathology criterion, which we rarely apply because it can only be applied once you've decided to do a cardiac biopsy, which is not typically done in these patients unless there's difficulty distinguishing ARBC from, for example, cardiac sarcoid or myocarditis or something like that. There are repolarization and depolarization criteria that can be based on the ECG, particularly T wave inversions in the anterior precordial leads, like our case presented today. The other criteria can be achieved by epsilon waves. For example, it's a major criterion as we described today, or an abnormal signal average ECG, although we less often do signal average ECGs these days. There's an arrhythmia criterion. You can meet a major criteria by right bundle, branch, block, arrhythmic sustained ventricular arrhythmias, particularly if they have a superior axis. An inferior or unknown axis will give you a minor criteria, as will 500. PVCs on Holter monitoring over the course of 24 hours, and finally the last criterion is sort of the genetic slash family history criterion. So you can reach a major criterion there if you have a pathogenic variant, which is sort of modern terminology for a mutation in one of those desmosomal genes that Dr. Hayes mentioned earlier, or if you have a family history, like in the case of our patient. I was also supposed to talk about how ARBC presents. And I think it's important to recognize this is a genetic disease. This is a familial disease. So patients come to us in two ways. One is sort of exemplified by the case you showed us today. So a young, healthy individual, disproportionately an athlete, will have symptoms of ventricular arrhythmia. So that could be syncope, like we have here, palpitations, presyncope, and so on as sort of a, a typical presentation of a, a proband, the first person in the family to be diagnosed. The patients also come to us for family screening. So increasingly, we're diagnosing the second, third, fourth person in the family because they're coming to us particularly for follow-up care. So in the case we presented today, in a perfect world, this woman would not have had an arrest on the basketball court. We would have caught her before that happened based on familial screening.
0: Well, thank you so much for that, Dr. James, you know, and really understanding the pathophysiology behind this entity and then also the diagnostic criteria is very, very helpful. And for those of us who don't have the honor of following these patients longitudinally, we may take care of them when they're in and out of the hospital for various reasons. It would be helpful to understand the prototypical clinical course. So Dr. Hayes, you have a kind of approach to how these patients present and then go from there not just on their index presentations, but kind of like, what what can we expect for these patients and how can we help guide them through the course and journey that they are now going to be embarking on?
4: Oh, sure. That's a great question. So as Dr. James mentioned, a lot of their presentation is, I would say, clinically silent. They're coming to the clinic because they have a relative that suffered from sudden cardiac death or who has known ARVC through the task force criteria. That's one of the reasons why imaging plays such an important role in this disorder because a lot of times the diagnosis t- is detected by screening using imaging techniques or ECG or echocardiogram. And so a small portion unfortunately do present with sudden cardiac death as they're presenting symptom. In one study, it was 11% that present in this way. And so because it's such a dramatic presentation in the minority, screening is, is very important in this population. The other way that patients present, although this is probably pretty rare because it's considered late stage of the disease, is with heart failure symptoms. So I would say the, the two um, most common ways are incidental detection through screening, like Dr. James was describing, or through uh, ventricular arrhythmias, the um, minority presenting with sudden cardiac death, and then some develop heart failure, although that's considered at the late stage of the
2: disease. This is fantastic. Thank you. You know, hearing about these early presentations and then their clinical course makes me very interested in learning more about the molecular changes that, that cause these arrhythmias and heart failure. Dr. James, would you mind speaking more to the genetic alterations that occur with this disease and how it is
5: inherited? Sure, I'd be happy to. So ERBC is broadly considered a condition inherited in an autosomal dominant way, with significantly reduced penetrance and highly variable expressivity. Let's see, in about half of cases, ARBC is caused by a mutation or a pathogenic variant in one of the five genes encoding the cardiac desmosome, which is, I think we talked about earlier, you can think of as the glue that holds heart cells together. About 60% to 65% of our patients and certainly half of our probands or index cases will have a variant you could detect on genetic testing And that's most commonly found in the gene encoding Placophyllin-2, so PKP2. The next most common gene affected is Desmoplatin or DSP, followed by Desmoglion-2, DSG2, and then Desmocolin and Placoglobin. And those variants are relatively rare in ARBC. What we know is that for PKP2, the most common gene, the mutations we find are truncating mutations. So mutations that completely disrupt the function of the protein. And sort of of interest, if people have inherited two copies of that truncating variant, so if you have two full PKP2 variants, that's actually neonatal lethal or lethal in infancy. So we're really talking about a disease that's autosomal dominant in terms of these truncating mutations. You can find a cohort of patients Will have you know a PKP two variant and then another potentially less severe variant and a second gene that's about three mm, to five percent of our patients and those individuals will have an earlier presentation and a worse clinical course. Any other questions about that? I can talk about that for a long time.
0: Yes, Dr. James, this is fantastic and thanks so much for helping demystify the genetic underpinnings behind this condition of ARVC. You know, we've actually had a, a really great, really, really, really great conversation with colleagues from Northwestern University about left-dominant arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy when they presented a very, very challenging case, a really important patient story that was way back in episode 56, and I urge everyone to check that out. Dr. James, could you briefly review the difference in the genetic pathophysiology in left versus right-dominated cardiomyopathy?
5: Sure, I'd be really happy to. So ARBC, as you can tell by its name, is sort of Disproportionately, a right ventricular cardiomyopathy. And so, when I'm saying, oh, you know, PKP2 variants are most common in ARBC, that's true. But left dominant cardiomyopathy has a really different genetic profile. So, we know that pathogenic variants in DSP, the gene that encodes desmoplakin, actually disproportionately cause biventricular forms of arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy or even really left dominant forms. And so, presented those genes in order. If I was going to present them in order of most, what's most common in arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, I would start with desmoplakin as the most common, followed by desmoglian 2 with PKP2 all the way at the end. It's also important to recognize that there's other arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathies that aren't associated with desmoplakin variants, and that'll include, oh my goodness, um Conditions associated with variants in, for example, RBM-20, the new player on the block is Filamin C, Desmond, SCN-5A variants can cause an arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. Uh, certainly, there is a common founder variant in phospholamban in the Netherlands that we also see in other parts of the world, and so on. So if you think about a Venn diagram between right-sided disease and left-sided disease, there's certainly overlap in the genes that cause both conditions. But, you know, if you detect a desmoplakin variant in a patient, you can be reasonably confident their disease course is going to include left ventricular involvement. And if you detect a variant in PKP2, that's far less likely.
3: Wow. Thanks so much, Dr. James. One thing that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting is that reduced penetrance and variable expressivity are common in ARVC pathogenic variants. I was wondering, can you talk more about some of the environmental modifiers that may be important?
5: Yeah, sure, James. I'd be happy to. And I do think the concept of reduced penetrance is really important when taking care of these families, because even if we see a patient, we do pre-symptomatic genetic testing and say they have the variant in the family. It's important both in pre-test counseling and then in follow-up management of that patient for them to understand that just because they have this variant, there's no guarantee they'll ever develop signs or symptoms of ARBC. And so in our research, even in ARBC families, which you can imagine are some of the highest risk individuals, if we detect a new member at a young age with, for instance, a PKP2 variant, there's maybe a one in three chance that individual will develop full ARBC, it'll meet definite criteria, a one in three chance that as we follow them over time, we'll start to see some diagnostic criteria met, but usually not enough to cause symptoms. And not enough for the diagnosis. And about a third of the time, there's just no association of ARBC with this variant. So I think the concept of reduced penetrance here is really important. We also know from population-based studies, we have an NIH grant with a group at Geisinger who has a large-scale sequencing effort, a genome-first sequencing effort. And when you go looking for desmosomal mutations, desmosomal variants, just in the general population, you find them, and these people only rarely have signs or symptoms of ARBC, so of the population penetrance of these variants is really low, and so James, you ask me, okay, so what what can account for that? And one thing we're very sure is a player, particularly in pKP2 associated ARBC, and the half of patients where we can't find a mutation for that better gene elusive ARVC is the role of high intensity aerobic exercise, so we know that our patients are disproportionately athletes. We've known that for decades. And then our program has led a series of research studies really documenting that participation in competitive or frequent high-level aerobic exercise is associated with earlier age of onset of ARBC, signs or symptoms, higher likelihood of having a sustained ventricular arrhythmia, and much higher likelihood of progressing to heart failure. And you ask me about penetrance. In the case of at-risk family members, certainly participating in competitive aerobic sports is associated with an increased chance of developing ARVC. So exercise is associated with disease penetrance in this condition.
0: Dr. James, thank you so much for that. And One aspect that has always interested me is the frequency of some of my patients being diagnosed with uh, things like variants of uncertain significance when they get a genetic screen for, you know, whatever condition we are looking for. How do you approach counseling patients with results of VUS or variants of uncertain significance? And uh, maybe you could share some tips so that the patients feel, you know, don't feel just totally bewildered at the end of the discussion.
5: Yeah, that's a great question. And I am so glad you asked that. So I think we're all aware and we've all experienced the likelihood that our patients will receive of us will receive a variant of uncertain significance from a genetic test, of course, increases with the number of genes you test. So a seven-gene genetic testing panel is way less likely to leave you with a variant of uncertain significance than 110-gene combined cardiomyopathy arrhythmia panel. So given that, I mean, Part of that VUS discussion comes in the pretest counseling phase. It starts on setting expectations. So if you know you're ordering one of these large genetic testing panels, the chances are at least 50-50 and probably higher that you'll receive a variant of uncertain significance, particularly if your patient is not European ancestry, really, because the genomic databases have less robust, less comprehensive data on people of ethnic groups that do not come from Europe. So some of it's setting expectations of the likelihood that this will happen and what it could mean. And then we do also know that while the genetic testing company may give you a VUS, particularly at our Centers for Inherited Heart Disease, if you're working with a geneticist or a genetic counselor and you receive a VUS, some of these we can do a decent job of binning into a high likelihood variant of uncertain significance. Yeah, this is something to worry about. And more often, yes, the lab is classified. This is a variant of uncertain significance. But boy, this variant you just found in RYR2 is highly unlikely to have anything to do with your significant left-sided cardiomyopathy, for instance. And so by putting together the clinical data from the cardiologist, the family history data that the patient is giving your genetic counselor, And sort of the expertise of some of the geneticists and genetic counselors of these genes, there is potential, not always, but often, to be able to at least push the VUS to one direction or the other. So I think that would be the two things I would say in terms of counseling, setting expectations that this isn't unlikely and working with your multidisciplinary team to do what we can to help patients be able to bin this uh, mentally in one side or the other. Sometimes it's a true VUS. Sometimes we can't really do anything with it. And that, again, sort of goes to counseling beforehand saying, you know, we may not know what to do about this now, but we will. You know, I think there's a decent likelihood we'll be able to resolve this as time goes on. Please check back in with us. Did that answer the question you were getting at?
3: Yes, it really did. And this has all been really helpful. So going back to our patient, you know, during her hospitalization, she was found to have an echo with a normal LVEF But interestingly, her RV was reported to be akinetic with an RVOT greater than or equal to 32 millimeters. Dr. Hayes, we've been hearing a lot about the underlying pathophysiology of ARVC, including these desmosomal changes, but what are the TTE findings that correlate with this desmosomal disruption, and how does our patient compare?
4: Oh, sure. That's a great question, James. So um, desmosomal disruption on the macroscopic level can lead to architectural changes in the myocardium, which mostly result in wall thinning and aneurysmal dilation. And typically this occurs in the subtricuspid region, the base of the right heart. It could also involve the RV outflow tract and then later in the disease can also involve the apex. And that's what they refer to when they talk about the triangle of dysplasia, those are the areas of the RV that tend to become affected with desmosonal changes that are manifest by um, th- wall thinning and dilation. So for this patient, I see that the RVOT is measuring greater than 32 millimeters. Now, one important point here is that it depends on the echo view in which this measurement was made because the cutoffs for RVOT dilation are different depending on the different views. So RVOT greater than 32 millimeters is the cutoff for the parasternal long axis view, where you measure the RVOT inner to inner dimension and end diastole. Whereas if you do the measurement in the parasternal short axis view, the cutoff for RVOT diameter is slightly different. It's greater than or equal to 36 millimeters being abnormal. So this patient, because they have evidence of kinesia of the RV, as well as RV dilation, This is highly suggestive of ARVC, and it looks basically on the 2D ECHO criteria that they would make one of the criteria by ECHO. So that's a terrific question. I think the important thing to note mainly is that the progression of the disease tends to be from the base of the right heart to the apex when it's a late stage.
2: That's great. Thank you so much, Dr. Hayes. It seems like a lot of our patients get an echo as their initial cardiac workup image, but Ms. R.V. then got a cardiac MRI which found regional R.V. 8 and an R V E F of less than 40%. Can you help us understand why CMR is the preferred initial test for um, ARVC? Yes, that's an excellent question. So CMR has
4: much higher spatial resolution and has just much more detail in terms of the right ventricular architecture with improved visualization. So one of the challenges with 2D echo is that you're somewhat limited to where the probe can go. And to the talent of the sonographer, the body habitus, there are many factors that can affect image quality. So traditionally, the right ventricle is more difficult to image with less reproducibility compared to a technique such as CMR, which has just very high spatial resolution and you can line up the planes exactly as you want. So you're not limited by the acoustic windows as you are with 2D echo. So because you can see much more detail and look at the very subtle but important influences and changes in the RV, such as the RVOT area or the subtricuspid region, which is also very difficult to image well on echo, those are the reasons why the sensitivity is just much more improved. It also offers a more comprehensive view of the RV in terms of looking at sacular aneurysmal dilation. It has much better quantitative measures in terms of RV ejection fraction, as well as RV and diastolic volume. So they're just much more accurate because CMR is the gold standard. So for all these reasons, CMR is the preferred imaging modality for this particular disorder just because of its very high spatial resolution and comprehensive quantitative assessment of the RV in general.
3: Oh, that's really interesting. So, you know, we've talked about how imaging such as echo and cardiac MRI can be helpful for diagnosing ARVC. I was wondering, can this kind of imaging be helpful for defining prognosis? Yes,
4: that's also an excellent question. There have been several studies published, particularly in the last 10 years, that have looked at the prognostic value For particular quantitative measures, both on ECHO and CMR. And in terms of all the different ways you can measure RV function and structural changes, one of the, I would say the top two measures that have the strongest prognostic value, at least on ECHO, are RV fractional area change. And that's acquired by calculating the RV end diastolic area and the RV end systolic area. And less than or equal to 33% is considered abnormal and one of the major task force criteria for ARVC. The other measure is TAPSI. And several studies have shown TAPSI measurement or tricuspid annular plane systolic excursion, which measures the excursion of the tricuspid annulus. If that's less than 17, it has a very high predictive value for future adverse cardiovascular events. So those are the two main prognostic markers on ECHO. There are other ones as well, though. There's also RVS prime, which also has prognostic value and a high sensitivity and specificity for RV dysfunction defined on CMR. The more novel mechanisms for looking at RV dysfunction that are more subtle include RV global longitudinal strain. And our group and others have shown that this can not only predict cardiovascular events, but also predict structural progression over time of the RV. In terms of CMR, several studies have looked at RVEF, and that predicts adverse events such as ventricular arrhythmias, as well as annular subepicardial LV delayed enhancement. So there are a variety of studies that shown both echo measures of RV function and dilation, as well as CMR measures of RV dysfunction and late gadolinium enhancement have strong prognostic value for patients.
2: Thank you. So Dr. Hayes, thinking about some of the other imaging modalities we use in cardiology, is there any role for angiography or CT in the diagnosis or management of ARVC? That's an excellent question because CT in particular
4: is becoming very dominant for cardiac diagnostics in general, but mostly applied to things like coronary artery disease. I would say they're not usually routine tests that are performed in ARVC patients just because of the strong diagnostic yield for echo and CMR. But it does become very useful, particularly if patients have renal dysfunction or when they have devices too that really causes a lot of artifact in the RV and can make it challenging because you have to also go to a specialized center to adjust the ICD settings as well. So um, CT can be useful. And there have been a couple of studies that looked at um, CT scoring system Measured against the ARVC 2010 task force criteria, and they found a very high sensitivity and specificity for detection of ARVC using a scoring system that relied mainly on RV dilation as well as fibro fatty infiltration. Another study also looked at the fat extent in the RV, but one thing I would caution people is that normal elderly people who are obese also develop fat in the RV, so it's considered a nonspecific sign, at least on imaging. So although um, multi-detector CT and angiography could provide useful information for RV quantification, they're usually used in only specialized circumstances, particularly when patients can't undergo CMR, since that's the gold standard. But that's an excellent question.
3: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hayes. I think a lot of this has been very high yield for our case. Going back to our patient, it sounds like based on this discussion, she meets quite a few of the diagnostic criteria for ARVC including TTE and MRI findings of dyskinesia, her repolarization and depolarization abnormalities, ventricular tachycardia, and a family history of ARVC. Now she mentions that she has a child. Dr. James, can you discuss how you approach genetic counseling with patients and whom do you recommend get screened for ARVC and at what age do you think they should start?
5: Yeah, thanks James. That's a complicated question and so I'm going to take it in a couple of pieces. So First of all, it certainly sounds like this patient meets definite ARVC criteria, and we know from the case earlier that her mother has had a mutation found associated with ARBC. So one of the things we do early with her is to try to figure out from the mother if we have a genetic test report that defines what that mutation is in the family, And then confirm that our patient has the same mutation. So that's what we would call family-specific variant testing. Now, it sounds like certainly if our patient did not have that variant, that would be a huge surprise. And I think we'd need to look further, potentially order a panel, dig deeper into her clinical situation. But in all likelihood, she would have the same variant. And identifying that variant and confirming she has it is important because the next step for this family... Could be cascade genetic testing. So, if we're confident that the variant identified in the family explains the condition, then certainly the first degree relatives of Ms. Arby could be offered genetic testing. And that would help them better understand whether or not they are at reasonably high risk for ARBC if they're carriers of this variant and really should go in for full cardiovascular screening so long as they're prepubertal, you know, 8 to 10 years old and up. Or what we all hope for if that family member has not inherited that variant, in which case we still usually recommend at least an ECG and maybe a baseline echo once just to make sure we're not missing anything. Because as I mentioned before, there are those 5-ish percent of families where there's two different genetic things going on and we don't want to miss it. But in all likelihood, those individuals will be dismissed from care, particularly if this mutation running in the family is a mutation we've seen before. Or we're confident it's associated with ARBC. That would be really useful for the family. So that's one of the first things we would do. Let's see. Assuming some of those individuals test positive or they decline genetic testing and decide they would rather just go with full cascade test testing. So the screening regimen For family members begins not in early childhood unless there's something really unusual going on in the family, but usually rather, oh gosh, six to ten, eight to ten. Certainly you want baseline screening before puberty. This disease tends to appear at its earliest in puberty. It's maybe not quite the case for desmoplaque and cardiomyopathy. And maybe not quite the case for those rare individuals with multiple variants, but that's typically what we recommend to our families, to have a baseline screen ages 8-ish, 9-ish, 10-ish before puberty begins. And then after that, we do our most intensive serial screening during adolescence, particularly if that child is participating in high school or college or junior high sports. If you followed that individual probably for a full screen in that age every other year, and we've seen nothing into adulthood, screening starts to spread out. And there's a number of published guidelines that all more or less show that same pattern, the exact intervals and the exact mechanism of recommended screening vary a little, but that's the concept. One good document that I'd love to call to the attention of your listeners is the 2019 Heart Rhythm Society document on the management of arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. And that has really wonderful recommendations for diagnosis management, including longitudinal screening of family members and the use of genetic testing. So I would love to point everyone to that. Let's see. And then you asked that our patient, Ms. Arby, has a child. And certainly there's historically been questions in genetics about whether or not presymptomatic testing of children should be done and you can easily imagine this outside the cardiology space should you test a 6 year old for a risk of breast cancer well perhaps not in this case because we know high level exercise is a risk factor and because we know people under the age of 18 present with this disease and certainly some children present with this disease we will offer genetic testing to children to families In this case, although there's no emergency, there's no reason for us to roll out genetic testing or clinical screening for an infant, for instance. I guess the last piece I'd like to mention is you asked me about genetic counseling. I just talked a lot about genetic testing. Part of genetic counseling is working with the family, with the patient to adjust psychosocially and psychologically to what could be a really challenging diagnosis, certainly to adjust to the concept of living at risk of sudden cardiac death. And that's something our genetic counselors in the Center for Inherited Heart Diseases spend a lot of time working with our families on. In ARBC, it's particularly tricky because we come with this recommendation for shared decision-making, but for a patient like Ms. Arby, in the case we're describing, it'd be a pretty strong recommendation to cut back on her exercise and limit exercise. So you can imagine this is a challenging situation for Patients. They've been diagnosed with a genetic life threatening condition. And simultaneously, we've just told them that they're not able to exercise, that they've probably done to cope in the past, and for which they often have a social and friend group. So there's a lot of work in that area in genetic counseling with these families as well. This has been terrific and it has had so many great
2: teaching points. Thank you both. So at this point, I'd like to highlight some key takeaways. Dr. Hayes, let's start with you. What are your main takeaways regarding diagnosis and risk stratification of ARVC? That's a great question. So I have several
4: takeaways I'd like to highlight. <clears throat> One is that in general, in terms of imaging the RV, that CMR really is the gold standard for a comprehensive RV diagnostic evaluation. And in general, in the disease process, the RV base is affected early, such as the subtricuspid area is very specific for that, as well as the RBOT. In general, ARBC also pathologically tends to affect the subepicardial area, whereas the endocardium is affected last. Other findings on CMR, such as late gadolinium enhancement and apical involvement, are thought to occur relatively late in the disease process. One thing to note is that fibrofatty presence, although is exceedingly common in ARBC, is a nonspecific finding, as this can occur in other disease states or in obese elderly individuals. In addition, something we didn't get to discuss too much was to have a high index of suspicion for LV involvement. That's another reason why CMR can be valuable because oftentimes LV involvement is not detected on conventional 2D echocardiography. However, this can be suggested with more subtle abnormalities, including strain abnormalities of the LV or on CMR. The reason this is important is because it has strong prognostic incremental value for predicting future cardiovascular events and arrhythmias. In addition, a couple other take-home points is that early deformation of the RV is an early sign of dysfunction. So using novel techniques such as RV strain imaging, which can either be done on echo and or CMR could be valuable. This can occur before the presence of regional wall motion abnormalities. In addition, I also wanted to highlight a recent review article that we published together with Cindy James and the ARVC group, the first authors, Nid and Mullock. This is from Circ Imaging in February of this year, 2022. I think lastly to leave off a couple of interesting questions that are yet unanswered and are an active area of research. So it's a kind of important to know also the knowledge gaps for future emphasis is how does tissue characterization fit in? And that's characterizing the tissue composition on CMR, there are a lot of new techniques available, such as T1 mapping, T2 mapping. And it's very challenging because the RV is very thin-walled and it's very difficult to have enough spatial resolution to make sense of these techniques. And how does edema versus fibrosis, how does that affect prognosis in CMR with all the new mapping techniques we have available? So I think that's an important question. And They're a very active area of research, including here at Hopkins, and we hope to answer some of these in the next few years. In addition, one thing that's really not known is the role of stress testing, and it's not routinely performed in ARVC patients, but because mechanical stress is thought to worsen the progression of ARVC, that can be an important question for the future. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a
2: pleasure to be here and to discuss ARVC imaging with you. Thank you for that. Now, Dr. James, what do you want the learners to take away about genetic counseling and family screening?
5: Yeah, so thank you for the opportunity to address that. From a genetics and genetic counseling perspective, one of the most important take-home messages comes really from our case. And that's the importance of being alert to family history of inherited heart disease, to take a family history and to recommend cascade testing to family members. So in this case, what we really have here is a missed opportunity at preventing what could have been a fatal event. So I think for all of us caring for these patients, all of us working for these patients, to mention not once, but probably multiple times, the importance of family screening to, in this case, Ms. Arby's mother. And that's something that can be a conversation over time, certainly organizing cascade genetic and clinical screening in a family can be difficult, but it's something that's worthwhile. So that's one of the take-home points I would make. Another point that I wanted to make clear is that we've spent a lot of time talking about the genetic basis of disease, about variants, about variants of uncertain significance, but it's important to recognize that nearly half, if not half, of patients with ARBC who were index cases, so the first person in their family diagnosed, you can do a thorough genetic test and find no pathogenic variants. You can look at a family history and not really see a compelling family history. We do know that those patients are really, truly disproportionately high-level athletes. So one piece of that is to not assume that a negative genetic test rules out ARVC in any way and to be alert to that really high-level athlete with arrhythmias that certainly could have ARVC even in the absence of a compelling family history. I think I will end, as Dr. Hayes did, on a discussion of risk prediction, which is I, I know something that she and I are both really interested in. So clinical factors, including a lot of the imaging parameters that Dr. Hayes just described, are increasingly useful in predicting our patient outcomes, um, both for risk of life-threatening ventricular arrhythmias, risk of heart failure, and other adverse cardiovascular outcomes. Um, Increasingly, we're learning that genotype matters in risk prediction, We talked earlier about, you know, what genes are associated with left-sided versus right-sided arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, and it appears increasingly that genotype in two ways is going to help us better define prognostic risk and advance personalized medicine. In one case, that's sort of genotype-specific risk prediction, so developing algorithms based on the main gene associated in the family. So for instance, you could imagine ARBC. we know we have a risk calculator for predicting risk of incident ventricular arrhythmias. as it includes right ventricular ejection fraction, but no left-sided parameter. I am imagining, we're working on a project for this now, that a desmoplaque and cardiomyopathy will probably be the reverse. I would be stunned if in that risk prediction model we develop left ventricular function. Some genotype-specific risk prediction coming soon. The other thing coming soon is that I think is going to really help us with estimates of penetrance, likelihood of penetrance in at-risk family members are the results from a large international GWAS study that's underway led by our colleagues, Peter Tintelen in the Netherlands. And so that is a large-scale international study analysis ongoing now. I think there's promise in the future of using genome-wide association study GWAS results to help us predict likelihood of disease onset in family members. So I think that's where we are. I'm excited to have been able to share this with you today and really appreciate the opportunity, Dr. Hayes, to spend time with you this afternoon talking about ARBC.
0: Well, this has been an absolutely fantastic discussion. James, Anjali, Dr. James, and Dr. Hayes, we are at the end of this episode recording, and I have learned so much. We've uh, been there and beyond in terms of ARVC, and I'm sure there's going to be more to cover on, you know, episodes in the future. So, thank you so much for being here. This was absolutely fantastic.
5: Thanks for having us, and thanks for organizing this, Dan. Thanks so much for the opportunity.
3: It's been delightful.
2: This was so much fun. Thank you guys for sharing all of your
3: knowledge. Thanks, everyone. I learned so much. <laughs> <laughs>